Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Today, before I begin, I want to remind you there's a website called wealthformula.com. Lots of resources there to check out. I would encourage you to go there sooner rather than later because we do have the Investor Club link on there. So if you want to get onboarded for some potential end-of-the-year deal flow, that is where you're going to want to go. A lot of the stuff, most of the stuff ends up there because it's Reg D 506B type, which is only uh, for our previously onboarded individuals. Then that's where it's going to end up being. It's also where you can uh, you know, sign up for a number of other resources that are available only on that website, wealthformula.com, not necessarily on this podcast. So go check it out for yourself. The end of the year stuff is going to be a lot about, you know, stuff for taxes and that kind of thing. So tax mitigating investments, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, and there's some real estate that's just finishing up. Probably won't have any more real estate for this year, but uh, other stuff. Speaking of real estate, the world of real estate is it's kind of a cult, okay? It, it really is, right? And it kind of annoys other people who are not part of this cult. Members of this cult tend to think that pretty much anything outside of real estate just is kind of a waste of money, a waste of time, waste of energy. I used to subscribe to this religion, and, and for the most part, I still kind of do. My portfolio is, well, it's largely real estate, and I truly believe it is the most tax-efficient, consistent way of building wealth out there, at least that I know of. But it's not the only way. And I'm quite sure of that. I've made plenty of money as an entrepreneur. And I know that you can make a lot of money in business. You can make money investing in businesses as well, in the form of private equity, things like that. The key, though, to making money in any of these endeavors is knowing what the heck you're doing. And personally, I know how to start a business. Okay, I've done it multiple times, and some have been big successes, some have been failures. And I know, generally speaking, like how to like market those business, how to make them profitable, all that stuff. But that's a very, very different skill set than knowing how to evaluate to buy a brand or buy a business from somebody else or know a business that you should invest in. That's a lot harder. I don't know if it's harder, it's different because I think those people, may have a lot of difficulty starting businesses the way I have. So it's a different skill set. Maybe if I did a lot of that, maybe I'd be strong at it, but it's it's not something I do. So right now it's a weakness and it's good. It's good to know your weaknesses and it's good to admit your weaknesses because they are often not insurmountable. And I will say this about weaknesses. 
One of the weaknesses that a lot of doctors have when it comes to investing, and I speak as a doctor, is a lot of people that I find is that sometimes when you're really smart, right? Like when you're really intelligent, you think that you're intelligent about everything and you're not. If anything, I, I feel like I'm pretty good at identifying what I'm not smart at. And that has been very helpful because weaknesses are not insurmountable. If you don't have the expertise, you just got to find someone who does, someone that you trust. Sometimes it might be writing a check to somebody, you know, for their expertise, something like that. But identifying you've got a problem is the first step. That issue for me, the issue of saying, well, gosh, I know how to start a business. I have good ideas. I can market. I can make things profitable. But I don't really know how to invest businesses in businesses, buy businesses, things like that. That to me was a weakness that I want, wanted and want to solve for, because I know there is a lot of opportunity in that space. And that's the primary reason that our group, Investor Club, is uh, partnered with Zolfi Ali. He's the guy, uh, you guys have, uh, a number of you who are investors in the group already know him. He's a broker-dealer, Valerity Group. He's been on this podcast before. But he's a guy who's spent decades in mergers and acquisitions back in the 90s with Bank of America and then JP Morgan in London and New York, went on to get recruited and ran a sovereign a sovereign wealth fund in the Middle East, acquired multi-billion dollar uh, businesses on a regular basis. He knows what he's doing, all right? So my goal in bringing him on board, and I'm revealing this sort of as a, a broader plan, which I've not done before, is to create a platform of investments that are available to Wealth Formula, Wealth Formula ecosystem, and frankly, to me, that is not just about real estate. That is a platform where it's private equity, it's roll-ups, it's all sorts of stuff that I don't really know very much about. And I wouldn't do without another expert at my side who knows what he's doing. So I want to create this kind of platform where all of our investments are institutional grade, okay? Whether that be in real estate or any other asset class. And when this latest real estate partnership that, you know, you guys know about, we interviewed uh, recently, you know, they're institutional quality real estate uh, operators. I mean, they, literally they're partnering with, you know, Goldman Sachs and Carlyle Group and all that. That's institutional quality, right? So we want to stick to that kind of um, thing when we can. And other spaces outside of real estate, that becomes particularly important because a platform like the one I'm talking about for individual retail investors like us, when I say retail investors, basically like not an institution, right? That, that kind of platform really doesn't exist. Okay, I know there are plenty of offerings outside of real estate that you were probably seeing in the podcast ecosystem, but I got to tell you, I am very, very wary of most of them. And the ones I've been wary of them have ended up complete, you know, some of them have ended up in, in, in really bad situations. And it's not because of the people who are, you know, raising money for them. I think when there's too many variables, you can't have amateurs who are unsophisticated in this space doing your due diligence. Too many people have been ripped off because people raising money are either unwilling or unable to do the level of due diligence needed to make sure that an opportunity is real or economically viable. And that is just the truth. I mean, I see the same stuff you're seeing. And I'm like, wow, wow, Chris is crazy returns. Oh my gosh, that's great. 
And who's behind it? Well, I know they're not necessarily going to be the most sophisticated people and that that has way too many variables and way too many ways to rip me off. And so I stay away from them. But hopefully we change that all because, you know, ultimately doing this with uh, Zolfi gives me a tremendous amount of confidence, right? I mean, if he can manage and pick out the investments for a, an entire nation, he can do it for us. So he, he's good at this stuff. And by the way, he introduced me to today's podcast guests. So I feel comfortable exposing you to them. By the way, that is another major thing for me. I try very, very hard not to get people on the show who I can't vouch for if they're in the business of any kind of raising capital because I've done that before and I got burnt. Okay. It's, you know, I've been doing this podcast for almost a decade now. It's hard to just have people on your show that you don't know very well. And then you don't know what they end up doing when, you know, the show's over. But these guys are vouched for. So I feel very comfortable having them on. They are in an area that we don't know much about, commercial transportation industry. And specifically, uh, what we're going to talk about today, I find is really interesting as a commercial airline industry. And I find it interesting, not only because, you know, the ways you can invest in something like this, you know, is new to me, but it's also an area that I didn't know was heavily dominated by institutional investments. And again, Going back to the theme of in terms of institutional level investments, this is kind of, again, the kind of space we want to be in. And this is an area which we are currently doing due diligence on right now and could be part of, of, of our own platform soon in, in Investor Club. So uh, without further ado, when we come back, we're going to have a conversation about investing in commercial airlines, you know, like the big ones, not just some BS airline in a third world nation somewhere or something like that. We're talking about like institutional level investing in airlines. It'll be a fascinating uh, discussion when we come back from these. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guests on Wealth Formula Podcast are Jonathan Kopp and Brandon Durr from Axis Alternative Assets. Uh, Jonathan is a co-founder, president, and CEO, or COO, I should say. And Brandon is the executive vice president and the portfolio manager. Both of these guys are serious veterans of the aviation industry with really decades of experience and billions of dollars of transactions in this space. So they've got very impressive bios for both of them that are sitting on my desk. But Rather than spend the next 30 minutes on that, I want to make sure we have time to get into the nitty gritty. So let's get started. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us here, Buck. Really appreciate it. Happy to be yeah, here. Thanks, Buck. Yeah, it was, it's great to have you. Now, this is a space that I have some interest in. It's not an area, certainly, that I'm an expert in, but we were introduced by uh, actually a, a broker dealer that uh, we both know very well. That's been helpful for, to get an idea of what you do. But you know, first of all, why don't you guys give us some background on this company, Access Alternative Assets you have? Essentially, like, who are you guys and what do you do? Sure. So uh, Access was was really born back in uh, in 2020. We're 
a, fin- a fintech platform that uh, originates, distributes, and manages uh, alternative investments across a broad range of different uh, asset classes. Our team really comes from uh, the institutional world. So we've all been collectively, uh, we've got, I guess, north of uh, 200 years of experience across our whole team. We've done north of $100 billion worth of transactions in in our respective you know collective careers. And uh, we've been distributing the, the types of investments that we're now offering to accredited investors uh, directly to the institutional market for our collective careers. And so really, Access is all about uh, democratizing those, those very investments that we've historically brought to institutional markets, uh, in, uh, institutional investors, excuse me, and uh, bringing them you know, directly to that accredited investor. Very cool. It's very much in line with obviously what we're we're about in this space and and in this uh, in our group. So let's focus in on aviation again. This is an area that I think, frankly, again, is really new to me. But the more I learn about it, the more interesting it is. Give us a broad sense of the players involved in the business. I mean, what what kind of players are involved that are revolving around this aviation world, and what kinds of business gets done between them? Yeah, I mean, listen, when you when you think about it kind of on a broad global level, you've got a vast majority of folks that that participate, right? From the actual manufacturers, think the likes of like Boeing and Airbus, right? Then you have, you know, the other aerospace and defense companies that help support, you know, the, the, the actual manufacturing of such assets. You've got the engine business, which in and of itself is a very, very large enterprise that effectively scales and is utilized by a variety of players. You have maintenance, repair, and overall, mm-hmm. overall organizations, effectively MROs. You've got all sorts of banks and financial centers that help finance all of these players, right? And so there's an ecosystem here from down to the landing gear, to the engine, to the widget, right? All of the different sort of nuts and bolts that go into this, right? There's a cycle and that aircraft can have a life of 20 to 30 years or more, right? Depending on whether it's commercial aircraft, it's a cargo jet, um, all the way down to, to, to private jets and other turboprops, right? So there's a broad segment here and all of these different players require financing. And the banks help support them in certain fashion. There's other larger lessors out there that participate. And so when we think about from an access standpoint, where do we play and how do we sort of insert ourselves, right? We're coming at it from from an investment standpoint where we're investing directly into the metal. We're going to, we can certainly finance it and provide debt. And that is one part of our business strategy. But for the purposes of this, this discussion, we're really talking about actually owning the asset, purchasing it, acquiring it, and then effectively monetizing that 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 metal, the aircraft, right, based on how it actually performs within this unique aviation industry, which is typically on lease to a variety of commercial airlines for, for passenger purposes. So when you think about that ecosystem, right, there's a lot of players involved and it's on a global scale. And our our view, our our position is that we're going to sort of be mindful of the regional plays, the demand factors, and all the different strategies out there. And so we take that holistic view and boil it down and then have an underwriting process that supports the individual thesis behind each aircraft. And we can walk you through that in greater detail. Going back to basics, I think some people, including me, like look at this and they're like, okay, so we're talking about commercial airlines, literally the same, the specific types of planes that we're flying on every day, right? I mean, this isn't private jets. This isn't, this is like commercial airlines. This is, you know, Delta, this is, you know, all those kinds of things that we fly on every day. And I think when most people hear about this business, they're assuming most of these airlines own these planes. Uh, Is that, is so that's not the case? Is that? 
That's right. Yeah. In fact, more than 50% of the global fleet of aircraft are actually leased by the airlines. And there are a number of leasing companies out there, larger financial institutions that lease aircraft to airlines. It's funny because I've been doing this now for more than 16 years. And every time in the past, I would tell somebody, you know, what I did for a living there, you know, I'd get this look of shock because they didn't, they fully expected, you know, when they were flying on American Airlines, that that aircraft that they were flying on was in fact owned by American. And that's certainly not always the case. I mean, it's so, so why is that? I mean, just out of curiosity, like I'm sure some people are out there again, why are we shocked? Because we just assume these are huge, these are huge companies, right? And why why wouldn't they just buy these things themselves? Is it, is it just the tax play? Is it just the capital outlay? Is it, you know, what what what's the reason typically? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say there's a variety of sort of financial reasons that go into that. There's some airlines, Allegiant, United, Delta, they may have a preference for owning, but even though certain airlines they're going to, based on their cost of capital, go to the external sort of third-party lessors and, and understand, is there a more economical way to achieve the actual operation of that asset? And certainly, you know, more developed nations, more developed airlines, they're going to have a different business model than perhaps what we see here in, in the U.S. legacy markets. But by and large, as the capital markets, interest rates change, that cost, you know, ebbs and flows throughout the different economic global cycles. And we're going through one right now, sort of in a post-COVID-19 environment, right, where you can see certain airlines have survived, they've received certain government support. And as they go through their internal treasury departments and figure out what's the best way to maximize their net profit earnings per share, they're constantly evaluating, should we lease this asset? Should we effectively own it outright for the long term? And, and that goes across the board, whether it's whether it's a passenger airline or whether it's you know more of a boutique airline down in the Caribbean that's doing puddle jumpers, right? Everything is you know, financially driven at this point, there's certain other tax incentives for sure that go into it, other regional uh, regulatory regimes that perhaps have an impact one way or the other. But by and large, there there are financial, this is all financial engineering in, in, right. in a sense. And as yeah. a lessor ourselves, we're looking at and figuring out which which credits, which airlines are, are we best, you know, suited to want to engage with. And therefore, they're doing the same thing on their side, which aircraft is going to benefit them from an economic perspective the best. Right. So it would be, it would be fair to say it's not just the smaller, the unknown airlines that are leasing. It's major, major airlines that we think of every day are leasing absolutely aircraft. Yeah, I mean, I I walked through an airport in the last two or three years, looked out the window, went you know going through the terminal, saw a tail number at the end of the aircraft. I said, "The team I'm on, we own that aircraft." So I mean, it's wow. it, it comes full circle, right? You're front and center. You're living and breathing everything that you're actually participating in. Yeah, I mean, I, I've owned. Uh, personally, an uh, aircraft unleashed to Delta and United and, you know, some of the largest airlines in the world. Right. And, and yeah, so. Yeah, I asked that question for to, to just get a sense of, again, what this is a new ask class for all of us. And, and we're thinking, well, gosh, well, I mean, if you're talking about names like Delta and United and stuff like that, that's a, a completely different risk profile than, you know, some third world airlines that we don't know of and that that kind of thing so that that's helpful how much do these planes typically cost this is given an idea like 737 all that like oh how much are these planes so that you know that really <laughs> that's a that's a hard question to answer because it really depends yeah. on you know how how old of an aircraft we're talking about sure. what its maintenance condition is but i would say um if you're talking about a 737 800 you know for well they're they're no longer making 800s it's now the the dash 8 max but you'd be looking at 
call it anywhere from 50 million on down to call it 10 million, depending upon the the age and the and the condition. Got it. All right. Let's kind of dive into this a little bit more. So you you're you're talked about, you know, 50% of this stuff is ultimately leased and that kind of thing. Let's talk about how that works. Uh, how are commercial aircrafts uh, typically financed? You know, I guess from the side of the the lesser, the people who are leasing the aircraft to the airlines, which is which is your company. What are the different ways to make money? Yeah, so Buck, thanks for that. I'll, I'll sort of sort of jumpstart that. If you know, when you think about the the streams of cash flow that the metal, the aircraft generates, right? As a lessor, first and foremost, you have rental income, right? So think about your lease. It's it's effectively a monthly payment that the airline will make. You know pursuant to the supply and demand economics in that region for that aircraft, you know, based on, you know, the seating, the arrangement based on the volume it can carry and so forth. And so that rental stream, right, is first and foremost, when you think about the underlying investor, they're getting quarterly distributions of that rental. So this is not, when you make an investment aircraft, you're not sitting there for four or five or six years without any current income, right? This is cash flowing on a current pay basis. So the underlying investors receiving those dividends and distributions on a real-time basis, which is, you know, definitely something that should be, you know, positive takeaway. And then when you think about it, you know, the, the aircraft, and we can get into this further, you know, it has a useful life. And the way these leases are structured is that there's always compensation effectively that the lessor, the owner of the aircraft has to receive in order to effectively compensate the owner for that utilization. And that can come t- sometimes in the form of maintenance reserves throughout the lease. So you take these maintenance reserves that are paid, you ha- you hold them, and as certain events come up throughout the life cycle of that asset, whether it's a you know an engine overhaul or landing gear or a nacelle that needs to be replaced, all of these different parts that f- and there's you know thousands of parts that form an aircraft. That maintenance and, and overhaul uh, activity is crucial to keeping that aircraft up in the air, flying and, and earning income. And so that there's a cash flow stream of maintenance reserves and or at the end of the lease, there's a formula that's agreed to between the lessor and the lessee that's called end of life compensation. And based on that, the lessee has to to return the aircraft at its expiry date, um, has to return the aircraft based on a certain minimum condition of the aircraft. And there's a fairly straightforward but complex formula that an algorithm you go through to calculate whether or not an airline will effectively perform an overhaul to make sure that the landing gear or the engine is back to a certain minimum condition, or instead, in lieu of that, they'll make a certain payment to you equivalent to what that value would otherwise equal. And so if you think about it, you got rev- rental income, then you have these what I'll call maintenance cash flows, both during the lease and at the end. And then when, once you actually you know, have terminated that lease, you've come, come to the end of its li- life, you have a you now have metal left. So if you have if we originally purchased called a, 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 a 15 year old aircraft, an end of life asset, so to speak, when it's now 20 years old, you have some decisions to make. That metal, right? So this is the third cash flow stream. That metal is worth something in the marketplace. You could theoretically go back out and lease it, depending upon the demand profile for the asset at that stage, or you may go through an analysis and internally decide as a team that it makes more sense to what we call part it out where you break down that aircraft and its engine and disassemble it into unique individual parts. And there's a very, very rich, healthy aftermarket for these parts that those parts will be sold back into over the course of the next three to eight years, potentially, depending on how you know the demand profile is for that individual part, a part of the aircraft. And so we'll go through that. And that those cash flows, the metal value at the end of that, uh, uh, at the end of that asset's leasing life. Um, will get monetized. And then fourth, when you think about it from a cash flow perspective, the investor, 
right? This is a financial investment, right? It's financial engineering. There is potentially, depending on the specific situation of each, each investor, a benefit from a tax depreciation perspective. And, you know, we're not accountants here and not going to opine necessarily on that, but it can be quite useful and beneficial to the investor if, in fact, they're uh, able to take advantage. I assume you're talking about uh, bonus depreciation. We do tend to talk about tax mitigating investing on this show quite a bit. So are, is that is that what you're getting at typically and d- dealing with, uh, you know, depreciation of personal property? Correct. Certainly, um, you have to, to understand where the asset's actually performing, where it's actually operating, right? And some of those key underlying, you know, um, details will make a big difference. For instance, if the asset is, again, not ta- not tax accounts here, um, but if the asset is effectively used in the U.S., um, and touches touches down a certain frequency a period of time, that, that asset will potentially qualify for the accelerated depreciation, which at this point, if you're entering into it in the year 2023, I believe should be roughly 80%, and then it scales down over time. But in other mm-hmm. parts of the world, in other jurisdictions, the tax benefits, the tax benefits uh, derived from operating the asset in those other parts, right? That that needs to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. You know, in general, it's it's uh, for a lot of investment stuff right now. It's not necessarily the best time to engage in the markets, and so there's a lot of money on the sidelines, people waiting to see which direction the wind blows, so to speak, and uh, waiting for blood in the streets, <laughs> things like that. Uh, interest rates are high. The world's volatile. Maybe some wars going on. That kind of thing. So, is it a good time to invest in aviation, and why? If it is. Yeah, I'm happy to start 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 that one off, Jonathan. Feel free to jump in. Um, so when you think about the life cycle of an asset, right? You think about where we are in our sort of economic global environment, right? The one thing I love about a hard asset such as an aviation and aircraft is that one, you've got downside protection. Its collateral value is is fairly robust. It's very sticky. So as you run through the events that were 9/11, when you run through the financial crisis in 08, uh, the recent impacts of COVID, right? The, the actual metal value, it's trading value out there in the marketplace, is fairly sticky. There's very little sort of, you know, uh, depreciation. There's a, there's some, but it's, it's, it's de minimis in nature to a certain extent. So as you think about the industry as a whole, it survives very well. Now, certainly there's government support, right? There's, there's other programs out there that have alleviated some of that concern. But by and large, the metal value is robust. And so when we go out there and so we underwrite what are the different parameters, the different risk profiles? When you look at the prism of opportunities that that asset, can, the aircraft, can actually yield, right? You, you take some assurances. You put your head on the pillow at night knowing that there's a metal that when everything goes south and you go 100, 180 degrees one way, you've got real tangible downside protection. You get your money back, a healthy return. Now, that's all That's all exogenous shocks to the system. That's all stuff that um, is sort of less likely to happen. It can, as we said, those economic shops have happened before. But aviation each time has was withstood it and come out stronger each time. And I would say, you know, that that's paramount for us. These are high yielding double digit assets. So one, you got collateral protection. Two, this is potentially a hedge against inflation. So we're, as, we, as we've gone through COVID, right, we have an environment where your dollar per gas is, depending on where you live in California, where you are, Buck, right, you've got Six, seven dollars a gallon, right? Yeah. I'm over here in the East Coast in New York. We get three and four bucks, right? So, in as you think about inflation, what a, a you know a loaf of bread costs, right? These assets are a decent hedge against that inflation. And we mentioned the tax depreciation play, right? There's something there for if the investor can qualify and and can take advantage. But here's the real uh, aspect I'd like to sort of r- r- really sort of dig in on, right? 
these hard assets and aviation assets, and then maritime assets, certainly to a certain extent as well, but there's no real sharp ratio. When you think about the volatility, there's no sharp ratio for what we're doing here. The asset has a stream of cash flows that we underwrite. There's lease compensation at the back end of that lease, right? That we, you know, bake in. There's metal value. But when you think about, you know, this this asset as it performs against call the risk-free rate, right? There's no correlation there per se, or it's limited at least. And when you think about your typical 60, 40, you know, traditional mix, right? When you embed this type of deal in there and then create a more diversified portfolio, net, net, all in, you start to create a risk profile volatility that is a bit lower. And in, and it doesn't stop there. The benefits are also you know, up higher from a yield perspective. So it's a win-win both ways. You reduce your volatility, get a better risk profile, and enhance your yield. So from our perspective, owning the asset, now your, your capital is locked up. It's not as liquid as being in the equity markets, right? For sure, it's locked up for a certain period of time, two to five years. But you get a win-win scenario from a volatility and yield perspective. Speaking of volatility, maybe you can kind of help us understand sort of, you know, the 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 fluctuations in in, in the market cost of, of of planes. I mean, for example, like, you know, right now, our example that I think most of us are aware of is is real estate. So we're dealing with investment, real estate, large apartment complexes, things like that. And interest rates are a big uh, are a big variable in in driving uh, costs for real estate primarily because we focus so much on leverage, right? So we, when we have higher interest mortgage interest rates, it drives up capitalization rates as well. The, the value of the properties end up going down. Do you have those kinds of movements, you know, and, and, and how stable or volatile are those movements uh, compared to, you know, what I just described in, in aviation? I mean, interest rates definitely have an impact on on lease rates uh, generally. But interestingly, you know, as as real estate has has been impacted, as we've seen over the last uh, several months, where where values have really been coming down as a result of that. Surprisingly, aircraft values have actually been going up. In fact, you know, right now is one of the probably best times that, that I've experienced in in my career to own what we call a naked asset or an asset that's off lease. So if we were leasing a, a 737-800 to Delta Airlines, for example, and that aircraft was coming back off of a five-year lease, uh, we were out now trying to figure out, as Brandon was alluding to earlier, you know, which path we're going to go down, whether we're going to be parting that asset out or whether we're going to be perhaps putting some capital back into the asset to put it back out onto another lease with a different airline. The, the, uh, the you know, as I said, the values are are extremely strong right now. Uh, engine values have never been higher. As a result of inflation, the cost of performing maintenance on engines is astronomically high as as compared to the where it was a few years back. So a lot of airlines that have maintenance coming due for their aircraft for their engines are looking to instead lease other assets in to avoid performing mm -hmm. maintenance on on their you know engine fleet for example so therefore if you have a spare engine meaning if you just took an aircraft back off of lease and now you have uh, an airframe you know the tube along with those two engines on one on each wing you can now either sell those engines or lease those engines to an airline that has a need because they don't want to go spend 
you know, exorbitant amounts of money on on maintenance. They did, they'd rather just, you know, defer that that large expense and pay it over time through a, a lease rate of an engine. You know, when you bring this asset class up and, and what, what we're talking about here, I don't think the listeners that uh, we have in this community, I think, are not, you know, concerned about buying real assets. It generally is the focus of, of people who are are in this audience. Right. However, you know, planes sound kind of exotic, right? They sound different. It doesn't sound like what we're used to. What I was uh, actually kind of um, curious about and thought was interesting was that there's a pretty big institutional footprint in this asset class, which to me at least signals some level of additional stability. Is that a fair assessment? Like, tell us kind of from a risk perspective, how do you guys view it? How do our institutions viewing this? And that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I can kick it off. I mean, there are very large, well-established leasing lessor companies out there, right? They've been around for quite some time. Many of them are publicly traded. There's a very rich and, and fluid securitization market for aircraft, right? The capital markets understand aircraft values very well. You know, double ATCs have been around for quite some time. So there's an active liquid market kind of on a paper from a debt perspective that's out there. Trading of actually metal when from an ownership perspective, right? It's something that's, you know, been developed more and more over the last two decades. And so those players are institutional. They're developed. They've got teams out there across the globe in various cities. I guess I'd say it this way. When you think about the volume of deals, you're into the billions, right? These assets make up Mm -hmm. a massive, massive, you know, market share of our gross gross domestic product. And so from that standpoint, you know, our market share that we're going to take when we go deploy and own you know 10 aircraft is going to be de minimis in comparison to the overall size, right? So we're going to pick our spots carefully. We're going to choose you know our credits and our operators uh, with a great deal of you know discernibility uh, and underwriting. And so by and large, yes, it is a large marketplace. They're institutional players. And, and as it will come to be, we should get into this in a minute, we have actually partnered with two of some of those key folks, right? From a technical perspective, right? One in the, I'll let Jonathan elaborate, but one of them is AAR and one of them is Skyworks. And both of those two parties, as our partners, provide a, a very unique skill set that we're able to leverage and, and benefit from because of that, you know, underlying competency that they have. And Jonathan, I'll let you sort of elaborate on those two guys. Sure. Yeah, so that'd be helpful to do, you know, again, just try to try to understand sort of the risk profile of everything and and, and that kind of thing for for this space. Right. So Skyworks uh, Capital, who is what we call a vertical partner of ours, along with AAR Corp, uh, also a New York Stock Exchange company, uh, and is also a vertical partner of of our platform. They're both working with us to originate aircraft opportunities that go onto our platform. Uh, in the case of AAR, in addition to aircraft, they also originate engine uh, leasing opportunities as well. Skyworks is one of the leading uh, boutique investment bank slash advisory firms in the commercial aircraft leasing space. They advise many of the household name airlines uh, that we've already mentioned earlier on in this on this podcast. AAR is one of the largest MROs in the world. Maintenance repair organizations, that's what MRO stands for. They're a huge uh, contractor for the U.S. military, and they're one of the world's leading experts in uh, end-of-life aircraft and engine assets. And so those two companies, in addition to working with us to originate opportunities, they also 
as the servicer of the investments that go onto our platform. And, and when we talk about servicer, basically that's you know keeping tabs on the aircraft throughout the life of, of the lease, uh, working on a, on a monthly basis with the airline operator uh, to ensure that the aircraft is, is uh, you know, being maintained properly and that we're getting utilization reports and that the rent's being paid on time and uh, performing spot and in check inspections on, on the aircraft or engines, taking redelivery of, of the aircraft and the engine at the end of the lease, handling any remarketing uh, efforts that, that may be required uh, whether through the releasing of the asset or through the sale. And these are, you know, world-class organizations that, you know, are we're very proud uh, to to be partners with, not only, uh, by the way, uh, through that vertical partner relationship, but they also both happen to be investors in our platform, uh, which we're, you know, we're thrilled about and we're, we're really proud of that. You guys um, obviously have, you know, some buy parameters and, and you know, buy box, maybe kind of describe like what kinds of deals are you guys looking for? Like what what determines what you may uh, try to try to acquire for your investment investor database, and where are those deals coming from? Yeah, so in, let's start with the sort of where they come from. When you think about you know the sourcing, the origination, as Jonathan mentioned, we you know we're certainly able to leverage the the, the global relationships of AR and Skyworks. But in addition to that, you know, the executive team that we have here at Axis is 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 fairly deep. We've got a bench of relationships that goes back, you know, four plus decades. And so across the board, not just in aviation, but all of the other asset classes that we invest in, um, our origination is, is is very strong, you know, and ebbs and flows, uh, four to six billion on average, right? So uh when you think about it, a lot of this is direct relationships that we have across the board. Uh, built up over, as I said, th- those many decades. And so when a deal comes in, we're, we're quite discerning. Uh, we take a, a very careful look at each opportunity. The pull-through rate is very low, right? So less than 5%, right? For sure. The pull-through rate is very low. And we apply a, a fairly rigorous uh, and robust uh, process to the due diligence and underwriting. So we think about you know, whether the aircraft is a wide body or narrow body, narrow body being more of a single aisle versus wide body, more of a, you know, longer haul, greater capacity type aircraft. And each one of those has a different liquidity factor when you think about what it's metal, how it's metal trades, right? Then we'll also think about, you know, the underlying jurisdiction and route network, uh, the fleet plan of that particular operator, understanding their the financial wherewithal. We're looking at that when we think about, um, you know, you know that, that specific opportunity. And then what's important, which is sometimes overlooked, we're very careful to analyze the velocity of cash flows, meaning how much is coming in every month during the lease term versus at the end, where's the maintenance being sort of effectively held in terms of, is it throughout the lease? Is it at the end of the lease? Those, that velocity is important towards effectively that internal rate of return that we're delivering back to the underlying investor. I add to that that another really important uh, thing that we look at it, you know, when we're looking at lease term, whereas a lot of the larger leasing companies that are more focused on just deploying lots and lots of capital and just maintaining a massive, massive fleet, they look to trade out of assets when they're coming up on the end of that lease, maybe a couple, two, you know, two to three years remaining on that initial lease term, or maybe even that that second lease term. And that really is, in our opinion, an opportunity for us to to sort of add some value. To that investment opportunity, because we, through our relationships with AAR and, and Skyworks, along with our, our teams 
collective relationships with a lot of the major airlines out there can really take an asset that might have, you know, a value of X and maybe improve that by 10, 15% by using some relationship or some creative, you know, uh, idea as a way to sort of extract more value out of an asset than what the the, the everyday lessor might, you know, might extract. That's really a way that we can differentiate ourselves and capitalize on those opportunities that that others might just uh, you know be less interested in. That's that's really what we're we're hungry for. Yeah, and and Buck, one other thing I'd add: when you talk about actual diligence, you talk about underwriting and then structuring. Right? There's a lot of blocking and tackling, which we you know we haven't really sort of dug into, but we do inspections. Right? We get appraisals done. We actually go on site. And here's the thing: these aircraft. They're only worth as much as the actual paper that the records that we're able to maintain. So those records for the engines, for the landing gear, for the airframe, all of the various components that go, they're absolutely crucial to actually the long-term viability of you know viability and valuation of that um, position. So we take we make all those efforts. We do that in-house, partnering with our service providers. Um, and that's blocking and tackling. And then there's the legal kind of documentation, getting that lease in place. That is a very thorough process. We have in-house at Access, uh, you know, council that is effectively one yeah. of the leading architects and and authors of you know aircraft and structured aircraft leasing and structured finance. And so we'll use outside counsel um, as appropriate, but we certainly in-house have have, have quite the caliber of, of counsel as well. Yeah, in fact, our our co-founder, my co-founder, and, and our general counsel, Ron Scheinberg, literally wrote the book on aircraft finance. Your your listeners can go check it out. <laughs> yeah, what's that? What's that book all about? What I think it's it called, called the Air, the Aircraft Finance Handbook, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, well that's good. <laughs> so so I guess he knows a thing or two about aircraft. Yeah, he finance. sure does. Right, yeah. right. So one one of the things that I guess want to come back to here is you've described sort of early on here about leveling the playing field for investors, like accredited retail investors, relative to in, institutional investors. Talk a little bit more about how you do that. Um, you know, what are what are some of the other features you employ? Well, you know, first off, you know, these positions, we're bringing institutional product to the accredited investor. That's mm-hmm. first and foremost. I mean, that's as about as straightforward as you can get, right? I mean, previously, these positions, the, these investments have been unavailable to your high net worth, your doctors, your attorneys, all the folks that have been successful in their own right, but just generally haven't had the means to get at and access hence our name, get, you know, the deal. And so by putting forward and all of all of the various, as I said, we wear the hat of the general partner, we wear the hat of the fiduciary and take, you know, that risk and, and underwrite with a lot of pride and, and go through that process. And so when we're bringing that opportunity to the table through our technology platform to the underlying investor, right, it's, it, it's an inst- institutional product, right? It has traditionally been available only to a unique set of folks and classes. And, you know, those operators, those larger lessors that we talk about, those publicly traded firms, right? It'd be difficult to sort of get a slice of that. Here, we're bringing it through our wonderful, phenomenal technology platform, which we'd love to show you at another time. These institutional products have been, and we run them through the gamut, the the pressure testing, as I said, the the pull through rate is very low. And by partnering with the likes of Skyworks and AR, we're effectively democratizing this asset classes and bringing it to the mass. So Jonathan, mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to add anything, but in and of itself, I, you know, there's an, I can't emphasize it enough that the structuring and execution and everything is done at a level that's, these are pr- premier assets. 
baked and, and held and managed by a premier team. So maybe you could, uh, you know, without going into too much detail, you you kind of alluded to being a fintech company and having this technology. Uh, maybe if you could kind of just give a high level, uh, you know, we've talked about sort of the nuts and bolts of, you know, the business and leasing these property and, and making money off of these planes and all that. But what's special about the fintech that you guys are offering? What is this all about? Sure. So really what the fintech does is is create a, a very efficient uh, and effective way for us to, no pun intended, maybe pun intended, <laughs> access a very large number of investors and uh, effectively distribute all of the necessary information that any investor would require in order to to make you know a proper decision to 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 invest in a given transaction or in a given uh, fund, and then our platform also really makes the whole process of investing incredibly easy. So everything from onboarding into the platform, setting up an access wallet account, which I'm happy to talk about, it's effectively a bank account that you create through our platform. That's part of uh, an FDIC suite program that we have in partnership with a bank in Kansas City by the name of UMB. And those accounts you know, are, are fully insured, uh, FDIC insured bank accounts. They're high yielding as well. They're generating north of 5% while your cash is, is sitting there you know, prior to making that initial investment. All your distributions also happen to flow back into that access wallet account as well, uh, which is really nice. The other thing that the platform does is it, it enables a, a totally seamless subscription process. So when you go to, you know, after you've uh, uh, looked at different investment opportunities um, and you've, you know, watched the videos, you've read the materials, uh, you now understand the investment and you decide you want to go ahead and subscribe to that given investment on the platform, uh, the entire funding process, the whole subscription process, all the the signing of documents, it's completely digitized and it's it's incredibly easy to do. All of the reports that we send out on a quarterly basis, the, the tax reports, the, the K-1s at the end of the year, it's all distributed through the technology platform that we've created from basically anything that is required to inform yourself about making this investment decision about anything that's required in order to pass a KYC or an AML check or an accreditation verification. It's all done through the platform. It's all completely automated. And we've spent uh, you know a couple of years building this technology with with our technology team who in their past have have built some pretty really large <laughs> other fintech companies that are uh, you know north of a billion dollar valuation platform. So we've got a world-class technology team. Uh, on our side, and and we're we're really really proud of our technology. Would love you know for for folks to check it out. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, well, guys, I know we um, you know we we've covered quite a bit, and and we've only really scratched the surface. Even scratched the surface of the things that you know the the materials that that I had already in place. And I just there's so much depth to this space. It's a it's a very complex animal, and part of that complexity. And you know the size of the market also leads to a level of predictability too. I think, which is what you were trying to get at as well. But I know you guys have a fund coming up, and uh, this is something that we'll probably be presenting through our uh, investor club for accredited investors. 
But I guess for any sort of parting words uh, of advice, can how, how do you, when you look at investors who are entering this new space, how would you uh, advise them in terms of, you know, increasing their chances of achieving their, their own targeted returns? Sure. So certainly understanding aircraft types, market demand, the age of an aircraft, the proper leasing and servicing, you know, all of that being conducted through due diligence and and financial evaluations, are, they're all essential when investing in commercial aircraft. But and by considering these factors and working with experienced partners like we do here at Access, investors can really increase their chances of achieving their targeted returns. And it's all about having the right knowledge, the right guidance uh, to navigate you know, this really unique uh, investment opportunity. Fantastic. Well, guys, thanks so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. Got Jonathan. Hoff and Brandon Durer from Axis Alternative Assets. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from you in the coming months. So thanks so for joining for us. Having us yeah, thank you, Buck. Yeah, yeah appreciate Buck. it. We'll be right back. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. And again, I'll just say that I think it'll be an exciting couple of years as we kind of go from this mostly, almost entirely real estate ecosystem to sort of going out there and, and seeing what else is out there in the world. There's lots of ways to make money. And I think the more ways that you know how to invest, the more things that you know how to invest in, the better, especially if you're into income, like passive income kind of stuff, because Right now, real estate is a very, very difficult to, to really get much in the way of passive income, but there's things that, that are out there, like we're going to talk about in the future, for example, this type of thing with airlines and ships and you know roll-ups, business roll-ups, things like that, where there's lots of opportunities for passive income as well. And again, the key and the important element here is we need to make sure that if we're doing that, I need to make sure if I'm doing that. You know, there's a heavy amount of due diligence there from people who know how to do that. Uh, anyway, looking forward to it. Hopefully you are too. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing up. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.